When our daughter was born about 18 months ago, we had a decision to make. Yeah, we'd spent years having unprotected sex while trying to make a baby. But now the baby was finally here and we were slowly dying because of sleep deprivation. It honestly didn't feel like an awesome time to get pregnant again. It took a long time for me to feel ready for sex, about six months or so. And then when we started up again, we had to decide whether we wanted to use some kind of birth control or roll the dice. It was kind of weird to think about because I still had wonky sperm. And I still had PCOS. We were basically shooting silly string into a black hole anyway. But we figured, who knows, maybe we get lucky. And we didn't. (laughs) It's been a year now and we still haven't gotten pregnant again. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, we have what is known as secondary infertility. And that's a term that means we still need help conceiving. But because we already have one child, everyone is kind of like, whatever, you greedy shits. You already got one. Yeah, we've been figuring out how to handle it. And we thought about calling up medical experts to chat more about this issue on the podcast. But then we realized we already know a bunch of people who can talk about this on a personal level. Yeah, and you, the listener, know some of them too, because they're people we spoke to in season one. Remember Candace Wall? Okay, so as a quick recap, Candace Wall and her husband have been through the ringer when it comes to fertility treatment. Last season, we learned that she had five uterine surgeries, including an eventual hysterectomy. Together, they had six failed intrauterine inseminations and six failed IVF transfers. To make things even more complicated and scary, her husband has had two brain surgeries for a tumor. And this may not be in the best taste, but I do have this sensation every time we're talking about someone else's story that it's like we're giving their baseball player career stats, like the infertility stats. It's like, wow, six IVF transfers with a career average spend of 10K per. She's headed for the Hall of Fame for sure. Candace is definitely an all-star. But as she discussed in season one, they found a woman who offered to carry their last two embryos in a surrogate pregnancy. And Candace and her husband were able to have one child. So Candace is now the mother to a wonderful four-year-old, or a four-nado as she calls her. But like us, she's also thinking about how to add another child to her family. And because of her hysterectomy, her secondary infertility is really complicated. There are a ton of moving parts. But back in 2017, a woman who knew about her reproductive history approached her and said that she'd be willing to carry their child if they'd be willing to do another round of IVF to make more embryos. I caught up with Candace over the phone about it. Well, people don't just proposition you every day to carry your baby. I mean, this isn't like a normal occurrence. And so at that time, we didn't have any um, embryos and I had already had a hysterectomy. So we, um, we said, okay, there, there's a lot of doors opening up. Let's, let's, let's run through them recklessly. And, that, and that's what we did. It's really complicated. So, you know, all of the logistics aside, it was, a, it was a year in the works because Chris had to have his sperm under quarantine. Fun fact, when you do a surrogacy and you're doing a fresh round of surrogacy um, with a fresh IVF, they have to quarantine the male sperm as an FDA regulation. So that quarantine has to go for six months. So we had six months to like work out the contract and all that. So all of that happened. And then we get down to calendar day one. And um, my husband, who had a previous brain tumor um, and and multiple brain surgeries, he all of a sudden um, had double vision again. And so we called up our surrogate at the time and said, hey, we're on our way to UVA, which was the Katie Kirk cancer um, unit there. Um, we, we have an immediate appointment. They're going to check us out. Everything's fine. But if you need me, 
to come home for anything, you let me know. Well, that was the point where she said, I can't do it anymore. And we were completely floored. Did the cancer spook her? No, um, I, I think she got cold feet and calendar day one was starting that particular week. And everything was, I mean, really, she got real. <laughs> and um, not that signing a contract and taking meds prior to that wouldn't have already made it real, but it got real, real for her, I think. And um, and I think she just got cold feet. And mm. at that point where we were at, we were like, okay, we can only handle one steamy pile of crap at a time. So <laughs> we went to UVA, <laughs> handled that, and then we came home and then it took about a month and we met with um, our surrogate then and her husband and she just said, I, I just can't do it. And for us, it was, it was really hard because um, we had invested 23,000 already into that. And um, talk about a rug being pulled from under you. Candace and her husband were shocked. In addition to the financial burden they had taken on, they had gone through IVF again to make embryos for their surrogate to carry. They now had three embryos, but no womb to call home. I actually went through depression, and I'm, that's not me. I'm that, I'm that person who you're like, please stop bright-siding life. Um, you know, like, oh, it might be Armageddon, but at least it's sunny outside. You know, like, that's, that's kind of my mentality. Whereas um, this, I mean, I was, I was in a depression, and, and that was, it was hard. But um, I put on my big girl panties. I switched counselors. I, I just changed things up. I decided to enter in a little bit more self-care into my life and make a little bit more time for myself and knock off those things on my plate that didn't matter and focus on the things on my plate that did. And, um, and, I, and I dug myself right out of that depression hole, and, and I was very happy about that. So um, I think with any journey, though, it starts with drawing a line in the sand. When is enough enough? And I told my husband, uh, by the end of the summer, 2018, we don't have an option. If we don't have a surrogate, Three's company sounds pretty good to me. And um, we're going to, I, was, I said, you know, I, I, I want to get off of this roller coaster. Um, we've been living over a decade in, in infertility, just in, in one form or another, whether it was trying to build a family we're trying to add one to a family. And it was time to enjoy life and, and, and not live in a constant state of paying um, a, a bill when it comes in that has to do with family building and actually use that, that money towards advancing our lives. So I think this is a conversation that every infertile family or person needs to have after a certain point. And that question is really, when is enough enough? When can we just be satisfied with what we have, whether it's one child or no child or simply less children than we imagined we'd have? Right. In some ways, while hope can be uplifting and motivating, holding out for a certain specific outcome that has a very slim chance of coming true can actually prolong pain. It can also keep us closed off to new experiences that we can't accept because we're still hanging on to old dreams. Now, you and I haven't really had this conversation yet. Nah. We're noobs compared to Candace. For us, it's just been five years of infertility. Psh, that's nothing. But we are going to have that conversation today. 
on a podcast, which seems like a good place to do it. Um, but there are some really basic questions that I want us to answer before we get to that big existential stuff that Candace is facing. And one of those questions that I know a lot of listeners are probably asking is, why do we even want more kids? Let's totally forget that we're infertile for a minute. Okay. Oh, that's nice. Everything is so much simpler. Though I do have to buy condoms now. What brand should I buy? Oh, I bet the wire cutter has No, we don't need to imagine it in that much detail. What I'm saying is, let's pretend that we're fertile, and we can reasonably expect that we'll get the kids we plan for. What's your ideal vision for our family? For me... I grew up with a sister who's only 18 months younger than me, and we've been really close my whole life. I've always wanted to have two daughters who are close in age and can have that same kind of bond. I just want to mention that you also have a younger brother. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sorry, bro. Love you, but you're not in the vision. Simon, what's your ideal? Okay. I don't have a specific age gap in mind like you, but I do like the idea of siblings. I have close friends who are only children, you know, people who don't have any siblings. And maybe this is an unfair outsider's perspective, but I feel like being an only child puts a lot more pressure on the kid and a lot more pressure on their relationship with their parents. So ideally, I want to have two kids, an heir and a spare. You yourself are the third child in a five-person family. Yes, I was unnecessary is what I'm saying. I was a bonus child. Okay, so that's our ideal. But now let's remember that we are infertile. Okay. Oh, this is less good. <laughs> so now there's this whole extra layer to the question because we're not just asking, do we want more than one kid? Now we're asking, is it worth it to have more than one kid when the first one cost us five years and $50,000? And going back to our listeners again for a second... The people who heard our story from last year might be thinking, you guys sounded fucking miserable and scared during your last pregnancy. Why would you want to go through that again? And we actually have another blast from the past to address this question. Last season, I talked to Nam Tran about male factor infertility and also jerking off in doctor's offices. We recently caught up with Nam, his wife Aubrey, and their adorable twins Theodore and Dexter. Just like us, Aubrey and Nam ended up having children successfully, but only after miscarriages and a really stressful pregnancy. We asked Aubrey if there was any point in the pregnancy when the anxiety finally lifted. Um, it did not lift at all <laughs> until the minute they were born. So <laughs> the entire pregnancy um, was definitely filled with fear. And um, especially with a twin pregnancy, you know, we did have some complicating factors and um, ended up on bed rest. And so there was just always at every turn, like a reason to be, kind of worried and <laughs> my brother just tripped on him um so the anxiety definitely was always there um and then once you finally hold them it's like okay you know we made it we did it and now we've just got to raise two decent human beings <laughs> yeah i can really relate to what aubrey's saying here because for a lot of people pregnancy is this fun magical time and they actually feel a little bit sad when they give birth that they won't be able to like be one with their baby anymore but for me, pregnancy felt terrifying. I think once you have a miscarriage, you can lose trust and faith in your body. My body did not feel like a safe haven for our baby. It felt like a treacherous place. And just like Aubrey, the stress and fear disappeared once our baby was born and we could actually hold her. 
Yeah, that's how it felt for me too. So part one of the answer to our listener's question here is that they only heard us during the most stressful and anxious point, which is when we were still in this pregnancy with no idea if it was going to work out. But once the baby was here, we were exhausted and tired, but we weren't scared anymore. We were, frankly, really happy. And that brings us to the second part of our answer. Yes, the pregnancy was miserable, and the experience of IVF was horrible. But once we actually became parents, our perspective shifted. Nam and I talked about this issue, too. You know, it's interesting for me personally, looking back on our pregnancy, I feel like the anxiety never really lifted for me. But in a weird way, now I look back with like a lot of fondness on that period because I sort of know there was a happy ending. And I was sort of like, oh, that was so nice when we were pregnant and like all that build up. And it, it sort of has taken this. It's like almost like now I can enjoy it. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. We joke about that a lot. And I, I think it just kind of applies to like no matter how you get pregnant. I think we're just kind of programmed that way because we have to be. Otherwise, nobody would ever decide to have kids again. <laughs> we just kind of like subconsciously push out all of the, the tough stuff and the, the bad you know things that happen and tend to grab on to, to all of the, the good memories. So I, I think we, we both kind of feel the same way in that regard. It's just, you know, you kind of have to or else. Um, you know, you wouldn't do it again. <laughs> hmm. That kind of reminds me of what people say about the amnesia that settles over women about their births. Women have to be able to forget how horrible labor was in order to be willing to go through it all again. And for me, I'm 18 months out of my birth. I'm at the stage where I'm thinking, well, my tearing wasn't that bad. I wouldn't know either way. I was forbidden from looking at you down there. But anyway, I think we've successfully answered the questions of why we want more kids and why we're not scared to try again. I think the last remaining small question before the scary stuff is, why rush? Why start up infertility treatments again? Now that we have this baby and the pressure is off, why not just take our time and see if we get lucky the natural way? We're only 33. I don't even understand this question. To me, it feels like, duh, of course we're rushing into fertility treatments. We're infertile. We host a podcast about infertility. That's how infertile we are. I actually think that this question is based on a frustrating and annoying myth about secondary infertility. It's this idea that once you have a successful pregnancy and birth, suddenly things will just sort of be fixed down there. And by down there, I mean your genitals, duh. So here's where I sort of reveal the source of this question, because I believe that within hours of our baby's birth, both of our mothers told us that a second child would now be easier and we should just, you know, keep trying. Thanks, mom. Anyway. The fantasy is so strong. I think one reason for this is that the myth is based a little bit in fact. For example, women who have endometriosis are often told that once they have their first child, they have a good shot at both curing that condition and having an easier time conceiving again. But this is also kind of a cousin to that myth that once an infertile couple just relaxes, they can loosen up and let the magic happen. It's this idea that once an infertile couple has a kid or adopts a child, they're going to get into this family rhythm that's going to, you know, somehow magically fix the actual physical problems with their balls and ovaries and uteruses. Yeah, I tried to look to see if any of this was real. And there isn't that much research out there about whether having one child through IVF helps couples spontaneously conceive their second child. I found one French study from 2012 which said that 17% of couples who did IVF successfully were later able to conceive naturally. That's a little less than one in five couples. So just listening to those numbers, less than one in five, 
I think this is another one of those pieces of advice where if you are talking to an infertile person and you want to open your big mouth and, you know, tell them what you think, you really should not be telling them that if they already have a kid, that the tension is going to be gone and they can just keep going for it. Because these numbers don't say that. These numbers aren't good. So just like you should never tell somebody to relax or just take a vacation, I think saying, well, now that you've had your first one, the second one's going to be easy is not good advice. And yet we do know someone who experienced this. Remember John Murray and Sylvia Ozols, those two comedians who created a sketch comedy show about infertility? Which one of them is the lucky 17%? It's John. But keep in mind this guy is not lucky. John's wife had six pregnancy losses before they were able to conceive their twins via IVF. And that was about five years ago, so they got really knocked around. Here's how he told us a story back in September, when we checked up on him and Sylvia. I will be, uh, I'll be upfront with everyone and, and tell you that it was, a, it was not expected. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last podcast, but um, about two years ago, uh, my wife turned to me one day and was like, hey, um, do you remember the last time I got my period? And um, I replied to her, I don't generally keep track of that. Uh, and then she <laughs> said, I, I need to go check. And sure enough, uh, we had gotten pregnant. We, without doing anything, we just kind of didn't pay attention. And suddenly you had the fabled miracle baby. We yeah. did. We have a fabled miracle baby. We're more, we look at it more as we're doped. We're the typical couple that, that did the thing of like, it will never happen again. And you hear a lot of IVF couples that have this happen where it's like, once it happens, it, it can, once you have, uh, you're able to get pregnant, it, it can happen again. It doesn't happen for everyone, and, but there is, there is, a, uh, it does sometimes happen like this. So we, um, sure enough, because we have twins, I now have three children. <laughs> so we were like, holy moly. Uh, this is, this is a way bigger family plan, uh, than we initially thought. I mean, we were just aiming for one. So, um, so we're, we're very lucky. We're very, we're very blessed. How nice for him. I'm so happy for him. Hooray for John. Hooray. (laughs) Well, Sylvia, John's writing partner has a very different story and probably one that's more true for couples like you and I or Nam and Aubrey. Sylvia, are you going to extend your family? Um, I desperately want to but I don't want to pay a doctor. <laughs> so I would like to, but I, the reality is that we probably won't, uh, but we're trying, but we're just not, um, I'm not injecting myself with anything and I'm not going to see a doctor. We're just trying and hoping and uh, making our peace with it. Just being one kid. Gotcha. That was the saddest answer. Sorry, that was very. No, that was a good. <laughs> that, was you know that was a real answer. Now that you reminded me, we have a, we do have one embryo still frozen that we've been paying rental on, mm. <laughs> doctor's office. And in the back of my mind, I do sort of have this crazy hope. It's just one though, so it's not. Um, it's unlikely. A doctor said it's sort of unlikely. Like there's no reason to implant it because it's just one, but. I do have that in the back of my mind as sort of the option Z. Mm -hmm. But anyway. uh, No, yeah, actually, you brought up a good point. Like whenever we get the the every six months freezer bill, we're always just like, ooh, say hi hi to your sister, Goldie. (laughs) (laughs) I always, always, yeah, I always like bring the bill to my husband. Like, are we going to keep paying, you know, paying for this? You know, are we, and basically, I guess I'm like paying for my hopes and dreams because I haven't said no. So. Yeah, it's not it's not 
cheap, but it's not so expensive that you can't keep on paying it for years. Yeah, it's a lot like a gym yeah. membership. Yes, the gym membership you never go to. Yeah. Yeah, Sylvia's situation sounds more familiar. We do have eight embryos in the freezer, but we've done genetic testing on them, and only one of them is chromosomally normal, and we'll come back to that. Unlike Sylvia, I'm way more comfortable pinning my hopes and dreams on that remaining embryo. I want to give her a chance to shine. Yeah, and right now, she's trapped in a Beverly Hills medical tower. After the break, we're going to talk a little bit about the first big roadblock that we hit trying to rescue our little embryo from that tower. If IVFML helped you feel heard, it helped you find your community, or if it helped you come up with a way to explain your situation to family and friends, please let us know. You can reach us at IVFML at HuffPost.com. A lot of you guys have already reached out. Again, that's IVFML at HuffPost.com. Thanks. We've answered all the basic questions like, what do we want? Why do we want it? And when do we want it? We were kind of hoping that we would avoid Candace's big existential question. You know, the when is enough enough question. But we're hitting a bunch of roadblocks that are making us have to consider this a lot earlier than we'd like to. Back in June, when Goldie was about 15 months old, Anna and I decided that it was time to start planning that second embryo transfer. In a way, I was kind of relieved that the fertility myth wasn't true for us and we hadn't conceived naturally because I had already developed this affection and longing for the Frosty we had waiting for us. Aw, Frosty. Okay, I like that. That's the nickname. That's the code name for this embryo, if it works. And it's a good nickname that I think will bring us good luck. (laughs) Okay, agreed. But before we can even get there, I had to switch doctors at our fertility clinic because our insurance coverage had changed. We loved our old doctor, but if we didn't switch, we were going to be spending thousands of dollars more on the same exact procedures. So I wasn't at the first meeting with this guy because I was at work and it's baby number two. So who cares? But I wanted to ask, 
what were your first impressions of our new doctor? Fine, I guess. Kind of boring. I got a bunch of hormone stuff checked out. My uterus looked good. And then he said whenever I wanted to start the process, it would be about six weeks from my phone call to a transfer. Anyway, like an idiot, I was walking out of his office when I blurted out, uh, what do you think about my weight? Do I need to change anything? And he gave me this like once over with his eyes and he said, well, if you're concerned about that, I can recommend some doctors who can monitor weight loss before you want to do the transfer. And that was it? That was all he said and in that exact tone of voice? Yes. He said it would be good if I got it to the 150s, and I was 175 back then. Here are some of my audio diaries from that period. The first audio diary I made about one week after starting back up on metformin, which is this diabetes drug that has some off-label uses, like weight loss and helping women with PCOS ovulate. One week down, I am shitting my brains out because the metformin, that is one of its primary side effects when you're taking the medicine and beginning to adjust. I mean, I've gone on and off medic, um, metformin in the past before, so I know that this stage is going to take like two or three weeks to get out of, but it really sucks. And I'm so lucky that I get to work from home because after every meal, it's pretty regular that I'm going to have like a really painful diarrhea. Ugh, disgusting. Here's later on that month. Basically, if I want to keep on track with our schedule of potentially doing the transfer in the fall, I have to start a super shredding diet now, which is what I've done for the past week, and it totally sucks. Um, I basically stopped eating refined sugars and all grains, and I only eat fruit once a day, and my breath smells really bad. I can taste it constantly. It's really bothering me. Okay, that was pathetic. I'm going to save you from listening to a bunch more of these recordings and just come clean. Here I am three months later, and I still have not lost a single pound. Well, maybe one or two, but I'm nowhere near the 150-ish target that my doctor wanted me to be. It's awkward for a whole bunch of reasons, the biggest one of which is that I pitched this whole second season of the podcast promising that the finale would focus on the suspense of our final frozen embryo transfer. I'm now not even sure if we're going to be able to make it in time. I mean, I don't think you should put the success of the podcast over, you know, your health and things like that. And our that was not part of uh, our family vision planning was where the second baby would come in the podcast. And the producers, you know, they don't care about that. They just want what's best for your health. Sure, that's what they say. The point is, I don't have clearance for my weight loss doctor to do this transfer. And I don't have clearance for my fertility doctor to do the transfer. And I just feel trapped and defeated. Mostly, I'm just embarrassed. I just wish I could do this whole summer over again. You've also been super angry about the whole thing. Here's this last diary entry we did in mid-September, which is when we originally thought we would be doing the transfer. You know what I really want to do? Mm-hmm. I want to rage conceive. <laughs> Can you... Can you explain what a rage conception is? How do you, do we go into his office and conceive in front of him? Like, no. You know what a hate fuck is? Uh, I mean, I, I, or know, a, I hate, never re- a hate watch. I, yeah, I mean, I, the, it's like a concept I sort of understand, but if you asked me to write in a dictionary, I probably couldn't. After years of knowing that I am infertile, I just want to be like, you know what? We can make this baby without you. <laughs> I'm going to start taking my temperature again. I'm going to start looking at my vaginal mucus. I'm going to start tracking everything, and I'm going to make you have sex every other day. I'm I'm fine with part of that. 
<laughs> with part of that plan, I'm good. I feel like we've sort of successfully proven that in, unless we try for like 10 years, we're not going to get anywhere. And I also think that we're not going to leave that embryo behind no matter what. So it's like, even if we got quote unquote free baby, it's like, we're not going to leave our baby's sister in that vault, you know? So it, that's what sort of feels to be like the rage conception is not as much as I would enjoy the process of trying to rage conceive, which I don't, again, is the doctor's picture have to be there while we're doing it? Like what is, what, I just don't quite understand the, we have to the ha- details. We have to have sex while also putting up a middle finger. Okay. <laughs> Um, so I think that's a, it's a fun idea. I'm willing to experiment with it. <laughs> I just, I'm not sure about the efficacy, efficacy, whatever, whatever the word is of that plan long-term. So that's where we are right now. We're giving into the fantasy about naturally conceiving, even though we just spent 10 minutes talking about why it's unscientific bullshit. The way that I justify the rage conception idea is that it's basically just a stopgap to let me feel like I have some control over the situation while I struggle to lose more weight. I am enjoying the trying part of the plan, not so much the rage part. Anna has been continuing on with her diet. And we're continuing to hate fuck. Don't you mean rage conceive? Yeah, rage sex. But... With this big obstacle, it's finally time for us to have that deep, existential, scary conversation that Candace talked about. The one we've been putting on. When is enough enough? This is a conversation we've been sort of dancing around over the past few months. It basically boils down to, what are we going to do if our last remaining genetically normal embryo doesn't work? So I'll put out the first marker and say that, I would be okay to do a third round of IVF. And I'd like to say that I'd rather keep winding down our stock of abnormal embryos than do a third cycle of IVF. Yeah, so I thought that Anna might say that here um, because she sort of has been hinting at it. And that's why I am officially upgrading this from a conversation to an argument. (laughs) Because this is actually starting to get a little bit heated in our real lives. We have already talked to our doctor about trying to use those abnormal embryos. And those are the embryos that did not pass the genetic screening. And what the doctor said was that those embryos are going to have a higher rate of failed implantation. So we try to implant them. It doesn't work. We've just wasted money. And also a higher rate of pregnancy loss, a.k.a. miscarriage. And then beyond that, there is a risk of a pregnancy happening, but there's being some sort of genetic condition or disease. So I don't want to experience any of that. I feel like the whole reason we did IVF in the first place was to avoid miscarriages and this sort of stuff. I know this is hard to understand, but I would rather take on those risks more than do a third cycle of IVF. Which I honestly don't really get because those miscarriages were horrible. I mean, they were horrible for you. They were horrible for us. And I also really don't like the idea of having to deal with a miscarriage while we are taking care of a toddler at the same time. But that's exactly it. I feel like now that I have my child, I think I have the strength to sign up for that again. When I was going through my first two miscarriages, I was devastated. My therapist even told me that I was depressed. And I used to mark these dates like, oh, this would have been Cleo's second birthday. Or, oh, this is when we lost Robocop. 
But now that Goldie's here, this is very uncomfortable to admit, but I never think about the losses. She just made everything better. Goldie made everything better. I agree that our daughter makes everything better, but I don't share your faith in the abnormal embryos. A genetic test has said that they're bad and unusable, that they have the wrong number of chromosomes and all sorts of other weird specific things wrong with them. So to me, the idea that we're going to pin our hopes on them, it, it feels almost masochistic. It feels like we're going to be jumping off a roof over and over again and hoping that eventually we fly. I mean, they may be abnormal, but there are some clinics that have been using abnormal embryos and they end up turning into healthy, normal pregnancies and babies. The science on this is controversial, but I think that out of the eight weirdos we got, one of them could surprise us. We can get into the scientific debate over abnormal embryos in another episode, but the one thing that I know for sure is I am not doing another IVF cycle ever again. Again, I am confused because, all right, I totally get that. I do not have skin in the game here because my sperm is already on ice from the surgery I did. So any new IVF round is all about you and your body and what you are going to be put through. But you already said that you feel like you have moved on past the miscarriages and even past the pain of labor. So I don't understand why the IVF procedure has this big negative space in your mind. Like those egg extractions sucked, but they never seemed as bad to me as either of the miscarriages. Uh, probably because somebody wasn't piercing your ovaries with a needle 20 times. You know that the needle goes through my vagina, right? Okay, so here is where I admit on the podcast that even though I knew on a logical level that there was a needle and that it took eggs out, I didn't actually picture it going through your vagina. And I don't know what I was picturing. I'm not sure what the physics and biology of what I was imagining was, but it just wasn't that. So I'm just going to give you the point on that, that yes, that part was very bad. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it sucked. But you're right. It's not just the operation itself. It's about the weeks of shots, the general anesthesia during the procedure, um, going to the doctor's office every other day, and then the soreness for weeks after the procedure. It's it's also about the cost. Probably another $15,000 at least. I can't in good conscience spend that money again. So I don't want to just be firing back at everything you're saying, but I really kind of want to press you here because... Implanting the abnormal embryos is not a free alternative to another round of IVF because each implantation procedure is like seven grand or so. So if we tried all seven embryos one at a time, we are talking about $49,000 for something that our doctor thinks is a crazy waste of time. Here's the deal. It's not just about the money. I mean, yes, the money does bother me, but I have to admit that there's a deeper issue here. What do you think about those abnormal embryos in the freezer right now? I mean, to me, they're an unfortunate byproduct. And that's what it was like for me, too, at first. I thought, oh, well, those are, you know, those are the seven miscarriages that I didn't have to have anymore because IVF saved me from them. But over time, I've realized that I don't feel that way at all. I mean, look, I'm pro-choice. I definitely don't think that those embryos are the same as a born human's life. But I do think that there's a moral weight to creating them. And if we do a third IVF round, yes, we could get lucky and get another normal embryo that could be a sibling for our daughter, but we're almost certainly going to create a bunch more abnormal embryos that are going to sit in a freezer forever. Knowing that those other embryos are in a freezer already weighs on me enough as it is. And I don't know if I could handle doubling that number. 
I don't have the same relationship with those embryos that you do. But this is an argument that I think I understand a little more. I think we're at a place now where we're both sort of hitting personal limits. I really, really, really do not want to implant those abnormal embryos. And I would go so far as to say that right now, I refuse to do it. I've definitely got a limit too. And it's and it's this third round of IVF. I, I mean, I already did some stuff that I wasn't super comfortable with to have our child. But now that I have her, I just don't want to push it any further. Ethically, financially, physically. I mean, it's different for everyone, as Candace says, but I just don't want to do any more IVF. I guess that's one of the most annoying things about marriage. Sometimes you have to accept people's limits, especially when they're lower than yours. So the answer to our enough is enough question is that the only thing we do agree on is that we are going to try to implant Frosty, the one remaining genetically normal embryo. And if Frosty works and implants and is born, then boom, we just had this big argument for nothing. So hopefully that is the outcome. But if Frosty doesn't work, it sounds like we just may be done, even though both of us would be willing to try different things. And I want to say that this is our final decision, that this uncomfortable argument is the end of things. But Candace's story shows us how hard it is to make absolute final decisions about this stuff. When we last heard from her, she was saying that enough is enough, and she was preparing to move on with her one wonderful kid. I said, okay, the end of the summer, this if we don't have an option, um, let's book one hell of a Disney trip and just YOLO. <laughs> Um, but of course, um, things that always, uh, you know, I, as I thought, you know, the summer was starting to wind down to an end and, um, of course fate had it that something else came, came up and that something else was, um, not normally guys don't really typically approach other guys about surrogacy. Just, you know, <laughs> it's not something that normally happens. Right. But my husband is in a workout group called F3. And um, one of his workout friends said, hey, uh, your name was mentioned in, in, a, in a small group at a church of ours. And mm -hmm. my husband was like, how so? So, well, uh, my wife wants to become a surrogate. And two separate people who know you said, we know a couple. And here we are. So do you want to do a surrogacy? Whoa, that's crazy. That's so crazy. We don't usually get two of these options. Yeah, exactly. It was so crazy. Again, that doesn't happen. And so it, it happened, and this, this ball was starting to roll fast. Um, so the, the current, the new surrogate that we have, a new gestational carrier um, that we are working with, she has had um, four beautiful children herself. They are a wonderful family. Um, she, she loves being pregnant. So we are currently in the contract process of the surrogacy. Um, so all is, is going smooth and, and here we are. So we, we shall see, but infertility has weird things that happen to you. Mm -hmm. I should be really excited about this, and I and I am, but I think after such a huge devastation um, happened that last year, I have 
a very guarded wall. How could you not? You've been burned. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man, that oven's still hot. And, uh, and so, you know, everybody always says that infertility is a thief of all joy. And I firmly believe in that. I think that goes with a lot of um, illnesses and, and things that you're diagnosed with that, that is life-changing, but this is one of them. Um, it really is a thief of joy. And so I am cautiously hopeful and I am cautiously excited for the months that um, are to happen ahead. So that, that's where we're at. I'm crossing all my fingers for you, Candice. <laughs> Thank you. Wow, she has really gone through hell. I mean, so many ups and downs over so many years. Candace is incredibly inspiring. It seems like she's been through everything related to fertility. And she's also further down the road on this journey than you or I, or Sylvia, or Nam and Aubrey. So I have secondary infertility in the fact that I do have a child and I'm now a parent after infertility, and I want to have a second child. Um, but I'll, I'll never be able to carry a pregnancy. So I'm, a, I'm as infertile as they get. Um, if I do get pregnant, I'm telling you, um, it will be through immaculate conception, and that's only happened once, so here we are. Um, but as for secondary infertility, I think it's really the misfit diagnosis because a lot of people don't get a whole lot of support when they're going through um, secondary because you don't really have a community of people who um, will help you on the mom side or, or, or that, that, that side, because they don't understand it. Well, girl, why don't you just have a good wine night or you're able to get pregnant before, or, you know, aren't you happy with just your one or two or whatever your family building aspirations look like. Um, whereas, and then on the infertility community side, well, you already have one, you, you, you are kind of that square peg, um, you know, trying to fit into that hole there. And, and so it, it gets really complicated because they, they don't feel as support, as supported as they, as they should. And then they also don't get um, or reach out for support. And I think that's the big piece is, is they're not talking about it. And, and, and people who are going through secondary infertility aren't reaching out for the support they need. And, and everybody should, need, should get support. If you're, if you're having trouble trying to conceive, it all sucks. Okay, I mean, if you have to go through IVF or if you have to go through treatment or if you have to pursue a surrogacy or you have to pursue adoption, no one wants to envision their life doing this. This is not something that you say, hey, I'm going to, this is something I'm really looking forward to doing. I want to go ahead and wipe out my account to do. This is something that you've painfully had to go through and make, make very huge life sacrifices to make it happen. Rooting for you, Candice, Sylvia, Nam, and Aubrey, and anyone else out there who got the child that they wanted but are still hoping for more. We want to say thank you to all of our guests for calling back in to update us on how they're doing. We also wanted to mention that John and Sylvia have a few more projects up their sleeve, and everyone should check out John's new podcast that's all about Bruce Springsteen. It's called The Boss Cast. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. IVFML Becoming Family is produced and edited by Anna Almendrala, Simon Gans, Nick Offenberg, and Sarah Patterson.